Foxes and Fowl is a movement committed to exploring and responding to the unexpected ways that God is moving and speaking in and around us. This podcast is part of that. We want to have conversations that matter with folks in all kinds of walks of life because we believe that the God of the Bible so often shows up in surprising and everyday kinds of ways. We want to pay attention and talk about that and just maybe be changed by it all. Thanks for joining the conversation. Hey, I'm Aaron, host of the Foxes and Fowl podcast. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Ross Lockhart, Professor of Mission Studies at the Vancouver School of Theology, Dean of St. Andrew's Hall, and the founding director of the Center for Missional Leadership, a ministry of St. Andrew's Hall. He's a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, a writer, and he can rock a bow tie like nobody's business. We're going to cover quite a lot of ground in not too much time, so stick around afterwards for some things that I'm thinking about from this conversation. In the meantime, enjoy. Reverend Dr. Ross Lockhart, welcome to the Foxes and Fowl podcast. It's so so great to have you here. How are you, sir? I am well. What a pleasure to be with you, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to sit down and uh, to have a chat. Uh, I've been looking forward to it. Good, good. Uh, me, me too. This is this is a fun opportunity for me to pick some of my friends' brains uh, <laughs> about some things we might not always talk about uh, over the course of a beer or just a conversation. So, uh, why don't we jump right into it? One of the concerns of this podcast is the idea of vocation uh, or calling or just kind of figuring out what we're supposed to do with ourselves and where where. Uh, I've always liked Frederick Buechner's uh, uh, description of vocation as where our deep joy meets the world's deep need. I I have no doubt that as someone who trains uh, clergy, uh, that you have some thoughts about vocation, but I'm also kind of interested in your own sense of vocation. I know uh, we've known each other for a lot of years, and I've I've known you in various different uh, ways, and and I'd love to know uh, you know, it's not quite a straight shot uh, from where we met to where you are now, and I'd love to know, kind of how that how that how that path has has sort of formed in front of you, or or how that how you think vocationally about what you're doing now, compared yeah. to maybe, or along with other things. So yeah, great great questions. I mean, I, I suppose I'd begin by saying that with my students now at both at St Andrews Hall and Vancouver School of Theology. We we're just actually talking about this in class yesterday that there, there probably is some value in um, discerning the difference between vocation and call. Mm. And that, you know, whether we want to go with Eugene Peterson's language of um, long obedience in the same direction, which I think he borrows from Nietzsche, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that sense in which uh, almost like congregations wrestle with vision and mission statements and vision being the target and mission being the arrow that's launched towards it. Um, and of course, in any quiver, you have multiple arrows, multiple missions could be conceived in the same way, like vocation to me is long haul. And it is, it is core identity piece. So I would say where then, of course, call, and you reference that I've had multiple calls in my life in different denominations and so forth, um, and in different provinces and in different congregations and all that kind of stuff. So call changes, but I'd like to think vocation, once it's been revealed, 
not just discerned, but revealed, then I'd like to think that that's for life, um, which gets confusing because we talk about vocation as work that people do. So clearly I'm not using it in that term uh, or in that sense. So for me, my vocation uh, is in my baptism. And it is in, in the language of Heidelberg, uh, my only hope in life and death is that I belong body and soul to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. It is my, it is my identity, not that I procured, but that God gave me in the waters of baptism um, at Kirkfield Park United Church when I was too young to know any better. Um, I spoke there at a conference actually years ago and many years ago, wow, 10, 15 years ago now. And I had never been back because my parents switched congregations um, a few years after that. And um, it was just so interesting. It was the same old baptismal font. Just to be mindful, I have in my own mind the pictures of my baptism day. Most of the people around that font now in glory with the mm. community of saints and just the sense in which that that's the moment of vocation our baptism i mean as you know when we discuss bart often bart would almost you could say go as far as to say our baptism is our ordination but i'll separate that because i think you know the call to ministry to be in the reformed tradition that we call a teaching elder that has multiple calls and so in that sense then having served congregations from nova scotia to uh, British Columbia, uh, now serving in this particular call at the college, um, that is more time specific. And I think part of the, the deal with seminary is the same as in congregations. You're helping people figure that out. You're helping them discern that. And um, I guess part of the challenge is in the church too often when someone has a, a really vibrant, vivid ex experience of the risen Christ, often we kind of slot them into ordained ministry, but there are many ways in which they live out their vocation. And so how are we helping people as school teachers or electricians or as stay-at-home parents and, and, and in the boardroom and so forth, figure out what they're called to in that moment because their vocation has been set in their baptism. Mm. That's good. Um... I, we've been we've we've talked a lot for through foxes and fowl about uh, the how our sort of everyday work comes together with with you know what might be considered more spiritual matters, and I, I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. That in 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 all our work we're exercising a particular vocation. Um, I do I, I do wonder about for people who don't have a a sense of God's particular call on their lives. You know how we how we help them to, to step into their most full selves. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, I don't know if you have any, have a thought about that. Um, well, I mean, I too love, I love Beekner's uh, quote and even, and you'll have to give it to me again. I always screw it up. Is it where the, where your deepest gladness meets the world's deepest yeah. need or something like that? I think that. I've, I've heard it paraphrased so many times that it's, it, it's in so many deep joy meets the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's in so many memes, who knows what the original was. <laughs> One of our listeners will email you the answer. But yeah. I guess for me, then, that is a distinctive, right? So even as Christians, as those who belong to the Lord Jesus, 
how, how do we know what our deep gladness or a deep joy is, right? Like, I, I think that also is revealed. That also is gift from God. And so maybe that's the kind of overlapping consensus moment in conversations with our uh, affable agnostic neighbors is to say, uh, you know, what, what do you really enjoy doing? What brings you alive? What are you passionate about? Uh, and then to get a sense of how that connects uh, to the broader stewardship uh, of the world around us. Because of course, we, we, we share this earth in common with everyone, regardless of what their beliefs are. And the desire for us to, to, to do good in the world is strong within all of us. Um, but trying to figure that out without faith language, um, it is a bit problematic when we just swim in the waters of, of faith, right? But I think, uh, you know, from an evangelistic perspective, it's important to be able to, um, to try and think, how, how, do I, how do I speak to people for whom faith language means nothing? I mean, I'll often say that adult converts, for example, are such a gift to the church because they still remember a life without Jesus. Mm-hmm. They still remember what a normal life is like before Jesus got a hold of them. And so they can speak more effectively often to, uh, to friends and family and coworkers and neighbors, unlike you and me, who were both raised in the church. Mm. Well, you and I are both lucky in that I think, I think we, we get paid to exercise our vocations yeah. in a way that, you know, not, not everybody's going to, but I think we want to aim towards kind of a coherence between how we, you know, support our vocation and what that vocation actually is whether yeah yeah in any case, yeah well th- thanks for that um yeah i mean I, I uh i i talked with our mutual friend jason biasi the other day and, and there are similarities between the two of you in terms of how you're exercising you know as pastor teacher preacher uh writer uh <laughs> you know i and i think it's 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 neat for me to see uh folks really kind of pulling together a coherent life that, that makes sense um, uh, while exercise while doing different things you know uh, I think that's that's really helpful so it's helpful for you to appreciate your your initial instinct that vocation isn't just what we do but the sort of ground in which we <laughs> from which we do it well and can I say on that too Aaron like I, when I was in congregational ministry um, and even now, but I think the, you know, the pressures of congregational life seem to demand this clarity more that I would often say, if I stopped working for the church, if I was no longer an ordained minister, um, my baptismal vows were more important than my ordination vows, which sounds silly. We really shouldn't rank vows. Are your marriage vows more important? Like, no, but what I mean by that is, I'll always be a disciple of Jesus, mm-hmm. whether or not I get a paycheck from the church. And, um, and you and I both know um, ugh, colleagues in ministry for whom that distinction has just poof, it's gone. Like, who would I be? I mean, retired ministers are an example of this. I've had experiences of retired ministers who are absolutely nothing but pure blessing and grace to my leadership. I, I am a far better pastor because of the kindness and the forgiving nature of retired clergy. And I've had some like horrible retired clergy <laughs> just could not figure out that they were no longer a minister of the church in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's important for all of us to have that distinction. 
that our, that our first identity is in our baptism. And then you're right, we are so blessed to actually have a vocation, uh, that long haul understanding of why God has placed us here to include work within the church and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Cool, that's great, thanks. Um, it's lots to think about. Uh, I, I, want, I want to switch gears a little bit, but not entirely because it's still, uh, it's still what you're doing. <laughs> uh, I, want, I want to ask you about, you, you became the Dean of St. Andrew's Hall uh, at a, a less than ideal time to take on a new leadership position. Um, at the time of this uh, interview, we are 10 months into uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Is it over yet, Aaron? Can I come out from the fetal position? Yeah, I, I feel like, uh, yeah, we're just around the corner. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you, you took on this, this leadership position, some of the work you'd been doing beforehand, so it wasn't all brand new. Um, you're at least in familiar territory. But uh, I, I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about, about what it's been like to exercise that particular kind of leadership in uh, such trying circumstances. I mean, basically, just how has it been for you? And, uh, and also, uh, anything, you've, anything you've been surprised by or that you've learned along the way, I, I'd love to hear sort of, yeah. Well, it, it's great. You know, it's um, so for your listeners who may not be aware, and some of us who are on campus, we always get confused. Uh, so I'm Dean of St. Andrews Hall, which is less an academic Dean. People hear Dean and more in terms of like head of school. St. Andrews Hall is one of three Presbyterian colleges across the country. Uh, and we exercise our teaching charter through the Vancouver School of Theology. So our, uh, our primary and sole partner really is VST. And so uh, I've been a St. Andrews Hall professor going into year seven. Uh, which is hard to believe, and um, and yeah, just recently took over as the head of St. Andrew's Hall. With that comes um, a 200-person residence at UBC, which of course taking over during pandemic um, has been a challenge with classes online, fewer residents on campus. There are budgetary implications for that, so uh, nothing quite like taking over in the midst of a global crisis, but um, I'm not the only one. Uh, Every, all of us have been impacted by the reality of COVID-19. So in a cheerful way, I'd say I have a great team. Uh, one of the advantages of being promoted from within is you know your, who you're working with, you know the lay of the land already. Uh, and so we have a great team working on this. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a dynamic place to be. We'll get into some of the reasons for that later in the, the programs and ministries of of the hall, but leading during this time, I would say um, I'm baffled by the people, especially early in the pandemic, who kept trying to um, brand this time as just gleeful opportunity to learn a foreign language or take cooking or acting classes online with celebrities. And I'm like, what? Tell me, like, didn't make any sourdough. I did not make any sourdough and you know it I've been working like seven days a week since March really um, as many people have and it's just uh, it is what it is and it's the latest assignment from Jesus so you do it and um, and I think uh, really it's more about you know ministry in general I would say is at least 80% personality management uh, and so in a pandemic 
it's about managing people's anxieties and their fears, right? And, um, you know, it has kicked every congregational leader I know from technical leadership to adaptive leadership, having to confess that they don't actually know what they're doing or where this is going. They can experiment and learn from that. And so too in, in the role that I'm in, but I'm really grateful for the ministry that God has placed me in and uh, get up every day cheerful to do the work and that kind of thing. But it's, uh, it's been kind of nice not to be the only one who doesn't know what he's doing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so the playing field is just leveled. So Exactly. exactly. Well, that's great. Um, I, I know because we're friends, I, I know that uh, one of your passions is, is interesting ways that the church is doing things. Um, maybe places the church is doing things that it's not supposed to do things or, or places that's working that everybody says it shouldn't work. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, creativity and entrepreneurship in our, in our work. And I, I don't know, uh, I, I guess I'm kind of interested to ask you whether or not entrepreneurship comes kind of naturally to you. Um, I, I, I know that you are, you're supportive and you're, you're exploring, you explore what other folks are doing a lot. So I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I want to know that. Is that something you feel yourself called to, or, or, or do you feel like you're? Well, that's a great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. Um, I, and I, so it's almost like when someone says, hey, how, how was your sermon on Sunday? I think, man, I'm the last person qualified to answer that. You've got to ask someone who's there and whether it was a stinker or not, right? right. Um, so am I entrepreneurial? I would say I would have characteristics of an entrepreneur. Um, and uh, two, two characteristics of entrepreneurial leadership that, that I've discovered over the years, there's so many, so it's not like this is it, but would be um, a, a sense of both um, restlessness and, and risk. So um, I, I, when I see disappointment in the church often, it's just this um, uh, risk adverse nature. Like, um, you know, if we just hunker down and keep doing what we're doing, uh, you know, the kids will dig it and come to church. And I just think, man, like, where is that coming from? Uh, and so you have to have um, a restlessness with the current reality, and you have to at least be open to uh, risk experimentation. Um, you have to get comfortable with loss, and um, and I think through through a missional theology lens, what's most important for for a missional entrepreneur in church leadership is is the acknowledgement that God is at work in the world, that, um, that we are not reliant upon human agency, uh, that it's about divine agency. So um, discerning where the triune God is at work um, and experimenting in ways of partnering with God is, is essential. And without that, I just see a lot, of, um, a lot of leadership in the church that's just trying to maintain status quo or continuing to return to the kind of technical leadership that worked four or five decades ago, but just has has no traction today. Hmm. Uh, just in case people don't know what missional leader or missional leadership is, <laughs> uh, what, what's your what's your quick and dirty definition of missional 
Yeah, so, you know, it depends the sources you go to, or the, whether it's Miroslav Wolf or, of course, Daryl Guter, who's senior fellow in residence with us, the editor of Missional Church. There's any number of places that you can go for definitions. Um, you know, uh, David Bosch in South Africa, Leslie Newbegin in the UK. I mean, if, if Missional Theology had a bumper sticker, it'd be a long bumper, but it would be <laughs> that the church doesn't have a mission, but God's mission has a church. And that can be overplayed. And there are some missional leaders, including a former congregation member of mine here in Vancouver, Alan Roxborough, who um, doesn't even like using missional anymore because he says that it's overused and it doesn't mean anything. But essentially the, the understanding why there is that modifier of missional on things is I like to think of it in terms of scaffolding that pray God one day we won't need the language. The scaffolding comes down. So what is a missional church? Well, it's just church, but is it possible to have a church that has no real deep commitment to uh, the activity of God in the world, to the sense of partnership and so forth? I mean, my colleague who you've met and is at Dubuque um, Seminary, it's a PCUSA school, Christopher James. Um, in his research as a missiologist, the work that I find myself in, he has a, a great little shorthand definition. When he goes out to churches and he interviews people, he listens carefully to the way they describe what's actually taking place there. So uh, for example, he'll say, um, so I understand you guys have um, a new affordable housing project underway. And they say, yeah, you know, it's really great. We had this good piece of land and we found some good partners in the community and we've got some smart people in the church and we got it done, hooray. And that's good, affordable housing. Or he might visit a church with the same kind of project and they say, um, we had no idea how we could get this done, but we prayed a lot about it. God consistently kept leading us into new partnerships in the community. We hit this roadblock and that roadblock, but God was faithful. God kept showing up, um, uh, giving us resources, money we could have never imagined. You, you, hear the, you hear the difference, right? And so there's the sense in which Leslie Newbegin describes the church as um, the sign uh, and the instrument and the foretaste of the kingdom of God. And um, too often, I think when we think of church as instrument, we presume we're behind the levers mm. rather than acknowledging that we belong to communities of faith in which when we gather for word and sacrament it's Christ himself who hosts us and who feeds us and who sends us. Mm. Good stuff. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing uh, to, to help the church think more missionally. Uh, is your formal title the director of uh, the Center for Missional Leadership? Yeah, so the, I founded the, I was founding director of the Center for Missional Leadership. We're in an in-between time now that I've moved into the dean's role in time. Pray God we will have a new director of CML. Until then, I continue to, uh, to fill that role. And even after there's a director... I'm professor of mission studies at VST and missional theology is kind of the signature uh, focus of St. Andrew's Hall from the board's direction reaching back almost a decade now. So I'll continue to have, have a hand in, but it was founded in 2015 uh, and 
once we had discerned over the last many years uh, that missional theology was the focus, I began um, creating the Center for Missional Leadership. Uh, Daryl Guder, as I mentioned, once he retired from Princeton Theological Seminary, kindly uh, came on as our senior fellow to help be the architect. So we've designed a number of things. Um, we're uh, really trying to put a focus on thought leadership in the missional conversation from a reformed perspective. And so that thought leadership plays out in um, resourcing of local churches through session or board retreats. Um, it certainly has, um, you know, speaking at conferences. Um, and then I would say primarily through the resources that we uh, publish. Uh, so my book, Lessons from Laodicea, Missional Leadership in a Culture of Affluence, um, Beyond Snakes and Shamrocks, St. Patrick's Missional Leadership Lessons. There are two books now at the uh, publisher, one a five-year uh, CML collection of essays um, on uh, Christian witness in a post-Christian landscape. And then as you're aware, I got a grant uh, to do some research in Portland and Seattle and Vancouver. Uh, with my colleague Jason Biasi. That one's entitled uh, Better Than Brunch, Missional Churches in Cascadia, and it's been signed off, so we're just waiting for it to be published. So those kind of resources are there. Then we also wanted to do some R&D, and we wanted to figure out not only do we hold conferences and equip congregations, and the latest uh, version of that is uh, the missional certificate program, uh, and that has 120 people coast to coast involved. Uh, Reverend Dr. Tim Dickow, our CML associate, uh, 30 years pastor at Grandview Church in East Van is leading that program, doing great work for us there. But we also wanted to lean into an area that the, the main line, or Aaron knows, you know, that I often will put formerly in brackets before that. I have a little, everyone has their own kind of hangups. Mine is that uh, we continue to call ourselves Lutheran, Presbyterian, United, Anglican, mainline churches, which implies that we're mainstream, which I think is actually working against us. We just need to be honest and say we're not mainstream anymore. Um, just books like uh, Leaving Christianity by Stuart MacDonald and Brian Clark, United Church and Presbyterian Scholars at U of T are the latest uh, reminder of that. So we wanted to say, okay, so in the mainline or former mainline churches, we've really broken down in church planting. We just do not do it well. The latest expression was new church development in the 1980s and into the 90s. Buy a piece of expensive suburban land, insert a young, charismatic, often male church planter, um, do the, the worst advice Reginald Bibby ever gave us in the 90s was, don't worry, mainline churches, you've got enough people, according to the census, you just need to reactivate former United Church Anglican Presbyterian. Terrible advice. People might check their Anglican on the census, but they have no interest in actually being involved. So that model has passed. So we've invested heavily uh, in exploring new models of Christian community. As I know uh, the United Church has, uh, Anglicans a little bit, well, certainly through fresh expressions, depending on the diocese across the country. So we formed uh, Cyclical Vancouver in partnership with the Cyclical Church Planting Movement, which is uh, Peace USA American Presbyterian out of Los Angeles. 
And since then, we've been able to build a network. There's now a cyclical PCC, a national church planting arm with resources, church planter assessments, uh, and monthly gatherings of those who are discerning uh, a potential um, a new witnessing community, starters who have already begun. These rarely look like brick and mortar churches that most of our current members would recognize but it's uh, trying to stay close to the ground and discern where uh, God is uh, building up leaders who in turn are forming communities. It's good work. I, I, I have benefited from <laughs> missional leadership at St. Andrews Hall. So it's a, uh, it, it's good company to keep. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you what, what you're working on now. You've got two books on, on the go. Maybe you don't have, maybe you've got uh, <laughs> too much on your plate. <laughs> the moment to be doing other projects but uh well so there's kind of like some short-term things mid-term and long-term i'm always kind of planning things out um one of the longer term projects that i'm just having a lot of fun with partly because of the the quality of the colleagues involved is um as a missiologist or professor of mission i'm working with uh fellow missiologists on an international project um, we have american missiologists uh, we have some folks in the netherlands in germany in australia i'm the token canadian and we're doing common surveys of uh, churches we're trying to figure out in the so-called secular west what christian witness looks like mm. And uh, so that's a multi-year project uh, that I'm working on. So that's kind of the, the longer term goal. Um, Short-term stuff includes just um, teaching great courses at the Vancouver School of Theology, as you know, Aaron. We have the largest incoming class this year in the history of VST, uh, incredibly diverse global student body. Uh, that's just such a joy to teach. Uh, so that that's an important um, right up front, but also kind of midterm goal of, of continuing to build the capacity there. And um, yeah, I'm always working on various writing projects and, and that kind of thing. I have to say that the big challenge for me has been uh, during COVID uh, is the is the end of travel. So I would, uh, in the footsteps of my predecessor here, Stephen Ferris, uh, would be uh, somewhere every Sunday, not only preaching, that's what people say, hey, where did you preach on Sunday? But it's the um, uh, taking the pastor out for lunch. It's doing a Saturday session retreat. And that in turn fuels the work I do in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So that's been like everything with COVID augmented. I still preach every Sunday. Confession, I sometimes preach in more than one place on a Sunday <laughs> uh, because it's possible to do that these days. I still lead session retreats, um, meet with congregations online, but, but in some ways it feels like living off the Rolodex from previous years of relational building. And so I'm, I'm eager to be able to engage congregations more directly in the future. That's cool. I am... I'm grateful for your kind of witness and reminder that uh, you know our work can have all kinds of different interesting facets, and we can be doing all sorts of different things if we if we have it uh, firmly grounded. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to know that you're right across the parking lot from me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's know right. that uh, so that we get to spend time thinking about these things together. Uh, and and yeah, I'm just really grateful for the work that you've been doing. Um, 
through CML and, and for St. Andrews Hall. And I think, you know, may, maybe, maybe we can go on this. I, I wonder, you know, at St. Andrews Hall, I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I get, I'm under the impression that there's been a bit of a resurgence uh, in student uh, enrollment at St. Andrews Hall uh, that, that sort of coincides with your time there. <laughs> Whether you were actually specifically tasked or not, I think you, you, had, you do have a knack for encouraging students towards serving the church in some meaningful way. And uh, I wonder, could, could you tell me just uh, a little bit about how that, uh, why that's important to you? Why it's important to kind of shepherd the next generation? Um, yeah. Wow, what a great question. So I won't take uh, credit for, for that growth. There has been significant growth. It's been encouraging to see. Part of it is rooted in an outstanding team. Um, and it's easy to recruit people to an educational institution that you just 110% genuinely believe is doing a, like a rock star job. Mm. Uh, so, you know, when I think of my colleagues at BST right now and the work that's going on, it's such a joy. Um, the leadership is like, there's two kind of categories I try and live by good and ridiculously good. And the leadership of Richard Topping as principal is like almost beyond ridiculously good. And so there's, there's so many factors at work at why coming to study, not just in person, but of course now online and long before COVID, as you know, we had hybrid education. It's becoming such a desirable place to prepare for ministry. I mean, the CML missional tagline is we're, uh, you know, preparing missional leaders for Christ's church of tomorrow today. And that plays out in spades at VST as well. We just are genuinely not preparing people for a church that no longer exists. We're, we're trying to discern what future church looks. Why do I care about recruitment? I love the church so much. And um, I was raised in the church, yes, but had a profound transformative conversion experience as a teenager. Um, and when I think about the, the work of the local church in shaping my understanding of who God is and what God is up to in the world, I really give a damn about who's going to lead the church after I am retired and dead and gone. And so that investment in the next generation of leaders is essential to me. And I also think, you know, over the years, even in my time, the external messaging of the church um, towards the church was starting to turn negative, like, oh, why do you go to church, that kind of thing. But I've increasingly watched the internal messaging of the church turn negative. Like, oh, why would you want to be in ministry? And there's there's not going to be a church X number of years from now. Like, what's the latest of the Anglicans? Gone by 2040. I just think, wow, where is your sovereignty of God doctrine when you think, yeah, the church is gone by 2040? No, maybe a particular expression of the church is gone. But the church that God is bringing to North America is um, a more evangelical, immigrant-driven uh, expression of Christianity that I'm excited about. I can even think in my like student certification interview, I had someone say to me uh, from presbytery, well, it's all fine. And you seem like a bright young man, but shouldn't you think about law or medicine instead? And this was an ordained minister. And I thought, when I get into that kind of position, I will never talk like that. I will say that following Jesus through ordained leadership, you will never have two days that are the same. You can serve in an unbelievable variety of capacities around the world. 
Uh, and the blessing you will give and you will receive is not even, you can't even put that into words. It's just profound and overwhelming. So the, the joy, I mean, Bonhoeffer's language that discipleship means joy has been near and dear to, to my heart. And so when I see God starting to just kind of pick away at people, and when you get a sense of, ah, I think that person is starting to get a sense of a particular call to ordained ministry or some kind of leadership in the church, I, I just can't help but be enthusiastic. And the great thing about VST is I get to work with Anglican, United, Presbyterian students, and many others, and just see them flourishing in their call in whatever way they're going to, I really could care less whatever denomination they exercise that leadership in. I'm just excited that God's getting a hold of people and that their lives are being transformed. That's awesome. Wow. I, I certainly appreciate your support, and uh, I, I love watching what's going on around VST. And I think uh, there's a there's a huge number of people who are really concerned not for the church that blessed them, but for the church that's going to bless the world in the in the future. And um, that's that's an important change these days. So I'm grateful to watch it. I'm grateful to be a part of it, and uh, I'm certainly grateful for your time today. This has been a lot of fun. And I hope, uh, you know, I hope we'll get, a, get to do it over a pint someday soon. Oh, come Lord Jesus, the sooner the better. I'm thirsty already, Aaron. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Take care. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Ross. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Here's some things I'm thinking about from our time together. First, vocation is long haul. And it has less to do with the specific work that we do, but with the ground from which we do it. That means that we can have multiple calls in our lives. We can do all kinds of work. But for Christians, an experience of Jesus doesn't just get worked out in ordained ministry, but in every aspect of our lives. Our deep gladness is a gift, and we should tend to it. That's the next thing. Next, new things are often born out of restlessness and risk. We need more than just frustration with the way things are. We need a willingness to take a chance on something new. Next, in any vocation, we have a responsibility to nurture not just what has been, but what will be. We can treasure what we've received without getting stuck in the past. And finally, discipleship means joy. That's good news. Thanks to the Foxes and Fowl team, the University Hill Congregation, and the Pacific Mountain region of the United Church of Canada for making this all happen. Thanks to Davis Miller for the tunes. Till next time, grace and peace.